0: Welcome to Torn Stubs, the Trash Movie Podcast with me, Robert Gershenson, photographer and head of podcasts at Trash, which could be found at movetotrash.co.uk and
1: Joshua Winning, the greatest film critic you've never
0: heard of. And we're going to the movies. This is our 50th episode whoa so we've watched stanley kubrick's 2001 a space odyssey which is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year is that the number of times you've actually watched the film potentially whoa (laughs) (laughs) at the dawn of humankind a mysterious possibly alien monolith infuses the ape-like species with intelligence evolving them from scavengers into tool-wielding hunters literally cutting forward four million years and interplanetary spaceflight is a reality Another monolith has been unearthed on the moon, seemingly buried there millions of years ago. 18 months later, a mission to Jupiter begins to go horribly wrong. There is a plan afoot, and it involves the end of the human race as we know it. So had you seen this film before?
1: Yeah, I think I saw it about 10 years ago. I was, I think a guy at work loaned me the DVD, and he was like, this is the best sci-fi film ever, you have to watch it, it's amazing. And I put it on, and I was just a bit like, "Oh, that's pretty. Oh, that's, that's some nice music." Ooh. <laughs> and just like, <laughs> "God, that sounds." So <laughs> found the rest of the film really, really boring. No, that's not true. I um, I liked a lot of it, but I didn't love it. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that this is like one of your favorite films, isn't it? I, to be honest, I think just this year. I think it might have become my not just my favorite film, but my favorite piece of art. Mm. I feel like you talk about it every single time I see you. I'm really <laughs> connecting with it a lot this year. Yeah, it's weird. Why is I, that? I don't know why. I'm just. I saw it.
0: I mean, I've seen it a number of times. Yeah. I mean, I, I saw when I was first getting into movies. I saw it on like Turner Classic Movies, uh-huh. and I didn't get it. I I don't even think I enjoyed it. It is. I mean, it's a very unique movie. Hmm. Then around 2002, I got the Stanley Kubrick box set. Um, So there's the disc in that. So I watched it
1: then. Wait, you got the box set in 2002? Yeah. Whoa. Whoa. What does it mean? What does it mean? Wait, is that a black monolith over there? (laughs) No, that's the fridge.
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) So I watched it then. Um, And I've seen it in the cinema a number of times over the past couple of years. Prince Mm. Charles was showing the 70mm print. Picture House Cinema showed it once or twice and I always go see it there. I saw it this year at the Royal Festival Hall with a live choir and orchestra, which is haunting. (laughs) It is, it's immense. It's so haunting. And then I've recently seen the Unrestored cut that um, Nolan, Christopher Nolan debuted at Cannes. So I've seen it a number of times. I think I've seen it, and I've obviously watched it for this, because I thought, it's an excuse, I need to put it on. So just this year, I think I've seen it four times. And we're only six months into the year. And do you
1: get something different from it every time you watch it? Yes.
0: I think I get a greater understanding of its scope, of how it was made, of what it could possibly mean. I even notice things I've never noticed before the time before I watched it just now was about a month or so ago at, was the, was the unrestored version. Mm-hmm. And when, when one of the characters, he's the guy who says, we need to keep the secrets in that boardroom. So you know, yeah. he meets Leonard Rossiter, that guy. When he first steps onto um, Space Station 5, there's like a announcement that calls out. Like a customer service announcement, or a public, uh, like a, a staff announcement, and I've never noticed that before. And when I was watching it in the cinema with my boyfriend, I said to him, "Has that was was that in the cinema? Were they calling from the <laughs> box office or someone? Or was that in the film? Because I've never noticed that." Yeah, and that's the the scope of this film. Hmm. You know, it, it's quite episodic, but it's it's so packed with so many different details that you can't take it all in when you yeah. first watch it I think you can't take it all in when you first watch it because it is so vastly different to everything we watch
1: how do, yeah. you, do you feel it's inaccessible um I pff, inaccessible I don't know I found so when I first watched it I was expecting it to be a kind I don't really know I think I was expecting it to be like a, a more traditional science fiction film mm-hmm. where there's a narrative of you know you meet a, a character, you follow them over the course of the film, and then they learn something about themselves at the end yeah and this a journey yeah exactly uh, an emotional journey um but this film is kind of it's like here's some people don't get too attached to them because they're not going to be around for very long mm-hmm. you're not really going to get to know much about them, um apart from what their job is, i guess um and the fact that they still use the word telephone, even though it's the year what two thousand two thousand and one? 2001? Well, it's set in two thousand and one. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no, but not all of it, it. No,
0: not all of it. I mean, um, part of it is set in the dawn of, ma'am. Yeah, and then and some it jumps of it, to like nineteen ninety six. It must be nineteen ninety eight because then it says eighteen months later, and then we're in. Uh, oh, so nineteen ninety nine, and then it jumps eighteen months, so that's two thousand and
1: one. Yeah. So. Yeah, I don't I don't really know what I expected. I thought it was beautiful. Um and it kind of it almost per, it seems to purposefully keep the audience at arm's length because it doesn't give you much. Like this is a film where strings are very obviously being pulled by somebody, but you have no idea about anything about that who that somebody is, even the basics of who they are. Mm. Like we're told that this black thing, this black monolith is in some way creating jumps in evolution like we, we can garner that from what we see um but we don't know who has put the black monolith there why they're doing it who they are what they get out of this um so in that way it does distance itself from the audience but it's also a film that really wants to inspire awe and is kind of in wonder of the universe and is in wonder of humanity and um evolution so it's like a really weird dichotomy where you feel drawn to it but it's almost like it's backing away as you're drawn to it. It's just constantly just slightly out of your grasp. Is that difficult to contend with when you want to watch something? It It's difficult because there's only so long you can watch something when it's when it's kind of keeping your arms length. Like I I did watch this in one sitting and I I, I kind of enjoy it, a lot of it. But it does take a lot of concentration to kind of just not get distracted and not start fiddling with your pen or yeah. um, go on Twitter and stuff. And I think the strongest part of the film is the is the the most narrative section, which is the HAL section, which yeah. is the bit that everyone remembers. And that's the most iconic part of the film is that interplay between this AI, this artificial intelligence, and a human man. Mm-hmm. And that's the strongest one because it follows a, a, an observable arc where you basically. It's like a creeping horror movie dread that, that steals through it. And you get a proper kind of little movie there. But it's just disappointing when that suddenly crashes into kind of 30 minutes of um, really abstract images. Is and that it, disappointing? It, or. Because I, I. For me, it was. Maybe I felt that. In the first
0: viewing, but I definitely think this, this is a sort of film that really gives itself over to repeat viewings because the more you watch it, the more you understand whatever structure is at play here and the, the, the audio links throughout, the visual links throughout and how they all relate to each other. Yeah. So do you, do you, what's, I mean, what's your take on, on what's
1: going on? It starts off with the dawn of man. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, the, it's, it's almost like science faction. It, it's, it's not, it's not pure science fiction. It's kind of, it's almost like a documentary esque view of humanity's and its place in the universe, I think. And it's about that evolution. And I mean, I read, I read the, um, I read up on the book, which Arthur C. Clarke wrote.
0: They were right at the same time. So, yeah, they disagreed about certain things. Yeah.
1: So there's stuff in the book that isn't in the film. Yeah. And they switched planets. So in the book, they go to Saturn, but in the film, they go to Jupiter. I think because Kubrick couldn't get the rocks right for the rings around Saturn. So Potentially, he like, yeah. He was like, no, let's just do Jupiter. But Jupiter's the so. cooler planet. the planet. <laughs> because it's got a massive red storm. Yeah. Um, what was your question? <laughs> about what, what you actually think is, is going is on. About?
0: Yeah. Um, so if we break it down, if we break the Dawn of Man segment down.
1: Yeah. So it's, it's about something interfering with humanity to push it forward in evolution and seeing what happens so it's almost like a it's almost like there's a god you know giving man fire it's like it's like the greek myths like we give man fire let's see what happens that's kind of what 2001 is all about and then it kind of ends with the suggestion i mean this is i know this from reading about the book but it ends with the suggestion that then man has jumped forward another step of evolution and is now able to live in space but that's very difficult to glean from what's actually on film. It's, you just see a floating baby in space. So I don't, that's not the ending that I oh, really? believe. Yeah, so what's your interpretation?
0: So I, I see it that we start off literally before anything has evolved. The, the film opens on a black screen. With that
1: noise, that kind of space with that, noise.
0: Yeah, with that, that uh, legetti, I mm. think
1: the composer is
0: if it was like a a camera right there the camera's pushed so far into the black monolith that that fills the screen Mm. and that noise that we always hear every time the black monolith is around symbolises that well A. the monolith is there and B. some evolution stuff is going to happen so then we open on the dawn of man and we see all the apes and they're they're very tribal but they're dumb as fuck (laughs) And the monolith shows up and gives the Moonwatcher ape the intelligence to pick up a bone and start hitting things with it. Yeah. So he hits other bones, then he hits another ape, and suddenly we have tools, we have a weapon. And so when he throws that in the air in this joyful, I'm so powerful, that's when we cut Mm. because we're making a link between The um, the bone, which is a tool, technology, making a link to what we actually have now, which is spaceships. Yeah. That was the start. This is where we are now. So then as the story or the narrative or the the three episodes unfold, we see that there's another monolith buried on the moon. We don't know by who. It gives out a signal. And I think that signal is alerting other technologies, AIs, what the plan now is. So then we skip forward 18 months later. Hal has understood that signal and is going to push man further. Mm-hmm. Hal is obviously part of this plan. So when we go through the Stargate, that's actually us evolving. And What's we, the Stargate? That's where all the colour streams. Oh, yeah. They're actually going through... I think that's us going through time and space so quickly that even light is is rushing past us. We are ahead of everything. we are being pushed ahead of everything. And we evolve so far that we actually become a new species.
1: Mm. And so what what do we have to learn from that philosophy? Like, what what is this film telling us? Maybe it's not there to tell us anything. Mm. Maybe it's just more of an essay. Yeah. I felt like this... This felt like a film made by Hal... Like it's been, it's been called a cold film because it is cold. It's, it's detached from humanity. It's observing mm-hmm. at a distance. Yeah. It's like a God's eye view of where, this, where, of the story of like space and man's evolution, but it's viewing man and woman as something separate from the filmmakers. It doesn't feel like it's not an empathetic film. No, it's, it's viewing, not. It's viewing it all from like a, a safe distance and it feels like Hal is observing everything that's happening in the film the fact that it kind of is obsessed with the the way that technology works it's like super slow-mo like the m- minutiae of a, of a docking station and like it's realistic things landing. right yeah but it's kind of it's showing us the miraculous mundanity of the miraculous it's like look at this miraculous spaceship and it's miraculously boring <laughs> <laughs> it's so boring just dock the ship but this is so gorgeous. I mean, yeah, there's a sense of discovery, and it looks gorgeous. It's it does so gorgeous. That photography, yeah. all done in
0: camera, with mm. the, obviously a couple of bits have been cut out and, and pasted. But yeah. it's not
1: it's not CGI. It's unbelievable that it's fifty years old. It's it does, unbelievable. It does hold up amazingly.
0: Like I was thinking, fifteen years after this film came out. E.T. was released. Mm. The spaceship effects in E.T. look really dodgy now.
1: Yeah. But this still looks fresh. But that's because that spaceship was put into an actual Earth environment. Mm -hmm. So it's always going to look a bit weird. Whereas Kubrick was kind of creating art. Like he was using paintings and models and stuff, wasn't he? So he he wasn't putting those models into like a field somewhere in England. Yeah. The lighting, his understanding of lighting...
0: Lighting direction, how it falls on something, is is just mm. second to none. Mm. Now, I don't care about Oscars, but this is his only Oscar. He for won it directing. for He won it for special effects. Ah. Didn't never won an Oscar for directing, huh. which is more evidence to suggest that the Oscars have no idea what they're talking about. The fact that they never gave Kubrick an mm. Oscar, they've never given Lynch an Oscar. Yeah, but his only Oscar was for the special effects
1: on this. And, and deservedly so. I just find it fascinating that it, this was the year before a man had landed on the moon. Yeah. Like this, the space race was ongoing. And so this film kind of wants to show us things that we've never seen before. Mm-hmm. Like it's very easy to watch it now in 2018 and kind of go, Oh yeah, there's space in it. And like, Oh, it's planet. Oh, great. Cause we've seen everything that Voyager sent back. We've seen all this amazing imagery but when Kubrick was making this film, he was creating stuff that we hadn't seen on a, on a big screen in that kind of detail. So... It must have been mind-blowing. It must have been incredible. I wish I could go back and see it. Yeah. Then. Yeah. That
0: in the, but like, not have a 2018 head, have a 1968 head. Just have your mind blown. It, it, it just... What's the equivalent? Like Avatar. <laughs> Oh my God, I don't know if there is any equivalent. We've seen everything we need to see on the Earth, I guess. Yeah. Is there anything that could shock us or awe us in the same way? It would have to be a real alien. It would It would have to be a real We're alien. We're waiting it? for them to find a real alien. But it wouldn't be fiction, would it? It would. That would be in a documentary. True, yeah. But in terms of being shown a world or a part mm. of our universe that we've never seen before mm. in fiction. And then, because the, the trick here is he's showing us this side of space in fiction and then we discover that things actually look like this in reality when we actually manage to go to space. Yeah. So we would need to find something out there that we can show in fiction and then have that
1: validated
0: a year or two later. In fact.
1: Mm. So I've been to... When they have those like deep space exhibits at like the national... Like the planetarium stuff. Yeah, the planetarium stuff where you sit in the seat and you lie back and you've got that great big curved ceiling screen where you just get sucked into space. Like that is pretty fantastic. That's Mm -hmm. as close as you're going to get, I think, to experience 2001 back in 1968. Do you want to go into space? God, no. God, no. Why? It would be terrifying
0: yeah it'll be terrifying like i i hate flying yeah. even just going to like berlin i'm i'm anxious as we're taking off i hate landing yeah a bit in between i'm not a fan of either yeah because i was walking home the other night and i looked up and it was one of those nights where it was still light but dark mm. it was dark. Dusk. <laughs> <laughs> but have you, some dusk but it was still light but the moon was out yeah and i i, I just because I've been reading a book about 2001 so a lot of that stuff is on my mind and I just thought to myself isn't it strange that we can from this planet see something that is out of our planet and it in it's in our orbit it's it's you know it's attached to our gravitational pull but it is a separate entity but yeah. we can see it from this planet and as much as I look at it I'll never go there yeah you know um, I can look at Spain in a book but I can go to Spain
1: yeah exactly you yeah you can never that, that space between us and the moon, as Oh, yeah. It it's a three-day trip. Yeah. And we haven't gone back there since 72, I think. Maybe 71. I just can't believe that in 1969, we barely had television. We barely had phones that were yeah. actually any good. And yet, we flew a man to the moon. He landed. He had a little look around. Then he flew home.
0: three of them, but two
1: got out. Like, how the... Okay, getting there, fine. But how the fuck did you fly back? They were basically on a rocket. Yeah. They were flying a rocket to the moon and then they flew back home again and they were fine. It's insane. I just don't get it. did my tiny human brain is both awed by it, terrified and can't comprehend what that is like. <laughs> to leave the earth. <laughs> Fucking hell. That's because we've we've never as individuals,
0: we've never had an experience where you know, if if you're like me, I don't truly believe anything hundred percent until I've seen it with my own two eyes. Absolutely. So I can't comprehend leaving the planet, going to a rock in the sky, turning around and looking at Earth.
1: Yeah. I think I would just have anxiety attack after anxiety attack after anxiety attack. Just drink. Yeah, I know. That's true. Can you imagine the minibar for three days? (laughs) That would be amazing. Um, Space is amazing, though. I am am obsessed with space, and I find it fascinating, but I just wouldn't want to be in it. what happens if it was like safe travel like like
0: um, the guy in the second episode of the film mm. who's going to the moon and um, the guy who's like we've got to keep the secrets he's just asleep and the air stewardess comes along takes his pen and puts it back in his pocket so he's clearly living in a world in a time when you know it's just, it's just commonplace it's just commonplace like Get we fall asleep on, on, on easy jet he's falling asleep on Pan Am to the moon mm. So if it was perfectly safe, because, you know, uh, SpaceX are trying to launch yeah. commercial space flights. Virgin. Richard Branson would trying to do it for years. I mean, that man can't even fly a hot air balloon. I wouldn't trust him with a spaceship. <laughs> oh. But it would probably, not in our lifetime, but it's probably going to happen at one point. But if mm. it was in our lifetime and it was safe, would you go for a... A weekend, t- a weekend trip. <laughs> That's the whole weekend getting there. <laughs> would you
1: go for a two-week jolly with Tom up to the moon? No. No, because you want to, like, hang out in the spa when you go on holiday, don't you? There's no spa on the moon. Well, if they've built one. <laughs> if they've colonised Mars or they've colonised the moon. Yeah. There's those, isn't there, like, they were trying to find people who would go on a one-way trip to Mars for, like, a special mission? No, thanks. Three years there. Yeah, I know. No, but you wouldn't come back. Well, what would you do out Three there? Three years there. Then you'd stay there. It'd be like the Martian. You'd stay and you'd examine shit. And then you would live the rest of your life there. But can we, as humans, handle the no? You'd have the to atmosphere. Have. We'd have to have suits and stuff. But they were they were definitely like auditioning people to try to send. How were they to auditioning? Well, like X Factor. <laughs> Big Red X. <laughs> the thing that really stands out for me watching this film is the like this is a this is a root of cinematic sci-fi. This is the, a massive, enormous root that has um nourished so much of the genre like there's there's a moment in the segment with Hal. i think it's that one where um there's the guys in the cryo chambers and there's some violin music and that music is literally used in alien as we watch the cryo chambers in alien 10 years later yeah so it's like wholesale lifted out of Kubrick's film and plonked down into alien Mm. um you know the list is endless for what this film is inspired. Yeah. But so you can see it in the film, but just sadly, I'd rather watch the other films actually than watch really? 2001. Yeah, I'd rather watch Alien. I think I just think you need to let the film sink
0: in. Maybe try and watch it once a year <laughs> because it's such a it's it's in a weird way. It's a really deeply personal experience because you read into it and you take away from it what you want because there's no answers given. It's very ambiguous. And I think Mm. if there were to be answers given, it wouldn't be as powerful as it is.
1: Yeah. I engage with film on an emotional level. I, I find film an incredibly emotional medium and this film, you know, there's no, the only emotion that comes out of this film is when Hal turns off the the life support for the cryo chambers Mm. because that's when the emotional passivity of the film becomes a device. It becomes something that is really engaging and the void of emotion is what actually gives it emotion is this really bizarre dichotomy, but it becomes sinister and it makes it a different story. But I didn't engage with this emotionally at all, really, apart from that moment where it's like, fuck, He just killed those people That's murder. A machine has murdered these people. But what about when Hal was murdered? Uh, I didn't see it as murder when it was Hal. Why? Because he's a robot. But if
0: he's got, if he's become so evolved, let's say that signal on the moon, you know when they're... in the the middle section Mm. when they go down to see the monolith on the moon and then the signal rings out and they're trying to cover their ears Mm. and then it cuts to jupiter mission 18 months later let's say that signal evolved
1: technology not man Mm. technology on to be self-aware but you can always bring hell back you can't bring a human back can you bring hell back you could always plug those things back in so it's not murder. But we don't know that, it's not do gone we? forever. We don't know that.
0: That could be turn off Hal, full stop.
1: Mm. Well, when I turn Alexa off and I turn Alexa back on, she's fine. So I think probably the same principle applies to Hal. Well, Hal evil. <laughs> He's got a big red eye. So <laughs> <laughs> um, Hal, is, Hal is fascinating because we're not that far off, Hal, are we? We're kind of, we've got these, we can't, I mean, I can ask Alexa a question and she slash it will answer it, but Mm. I can't have a conversation with her. Mm -hmm. I can't debate with Alexa. Um, But you can with Hal. But you can with Hal. But how far off are we with Hal? Because
0: Hal can win at chess and he can comment on, on drawings that he's never seen before. Mm. And he can have a conversation
1: with a newsreader. But he has all the hallmarks of a villain because he's manipulative and he's scheming, and he's he has, or oh, it has no qualms in killing. To ensure his own survival, it's kind of it's a villain. Hal is a villain. Also keeps secrets. Yeah, like no one knew. Like he didn't no try one knew. to have a conversation when he when he lip when he read their. Yeah, lips. no one knows he can lip read. But he could have said to them, look. I've read your lips and I know what you're planning, but can we just have a chat about this? He doesn't. He just decides to eject them off into space. That bit, is, that bit is terrifying. Yeah, it is. And I love how the intermission at the end, just before the intermission, it's this really subdued moment where they've been talking to each other the whole time and you're mm. just having a really long discussion about this. And frankly, it gets a bit boring. But then suddenly... <laughs> They're doing a the podcast. <laughs> and then suddenly... With no flair and no kind of showboating, you suddenly are shown that Hal can see their lips moving and you know that he's lip read what they've said. Mm -hmm. And then it goes intermission, And it's such a beautifully handled thing. And there's no like, dun, dun,
0: dun. There's no tension music. There's no No. evil music. It's just, oh,
1: Hal can see. That's the other thing that, Obviously, George Lucas was hugely inspired by this film. Mm-hmm. But did you know that he even took that line when um, one of the one of the guys says, I've got a bad feeling about him, meaning Hal. Yeah. And it's like, George just... I've
0: like, got a feeling, bad feeling about him. Yeah, this. George just took that line. I think there's more links between THX and 2001 than there is between Star Wars and 2001.
1: Oh, yeah, I've not seen THX. It's, it's quite
0: cerebral. Mm. It's quite removed. Quite quote-unquote, allegedly cold. Mm. It's quite artful and visual. Mm. Star Wars is not... I mean, George Lucas' Star Wars, his first one, not that visual, Mm. and it's not that good a movie.
1: It's not fun. It's great fun.
0: Yeah. The the visuals actually come in with um, Empire Strikes Back, I feel. Yeah. And then The Last Jedi has some of the best visuals in Star Mm. Wars. Ever. but THX is, is more like an experimental movie it was an experimental short that was developed into a feature it's one of my favourite George Lucas movies the ones that he's ever oh, been right. involved in
1: yeah what including Willow I've never seen Willow Willow's good fun it's basically just The Hobbit but better <laughs> <laughs> can't say that <laughs> <laughs> yeah you can <laughs>
0: I feel that with how possibly he's evolved beyond human comprehension but if that is the case, why didn't he put in a failsafe that stops the humans from
1: disassembling him? I suppose the failsafe was, I'm just going to turn off your cryo chambers. But just in case, you would... How did he actually get back into the...
0: Who, Dave? Yeah. He used the outside... But om- he didn't have a helmet, helmet on. Held his breath, and then... Do we see that? Yeah, you know that bit where he he, he falls towards the camera... He turns uh, the pod around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uses the little like little pincer things to unlock the door. Then he jumps in, holds his breath, jumps in, closes the the airlock and the the room fills with air. That is brilliant because it's mm. that beeping and that blooping is so relentless and intense. It's so uncomfortable mm. just to hear. And it's and it's 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 like it's not getting louder on the, the 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 film, but because it's so relentless, it's like ringing through your head. And then when he opens up that that door, it's dead silence. Mm. And until he closes, he gets the handle, slams it down, the door shuts and the room is sealed. That's when the air rushes in and that's when the the noise cuts back in. Mm. I spoke about on the Great Gatsby episode, the concept of everything louder than everything else. Yeah. This is more like, everything quieter than everything else. Yeah, it is. It's such a quiet, Mm. subtle soundscape. Yeah. It's just someone breathing sometimes. In
1: space, no one can hear you do anything.
0: Yeah. He really takes that to heart. Yeah. Other films don't. Like, I would have loved for Gravity to have followed that rule. Mm. Then I wouldn't have to hear Sandra Bullock bitching and moaning. (laughs) Oh my God. Oh, Oh my God. Oh no. Oh my God. Oh my God. That's all that, that... That performance is that. <laughs> oh, my God, there's a fire. Oh, no. I'm no, in I'm gonna, the I'm gonna fetal position. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God.
1: Did you like the music used in the film? That oh, was great. Really great. But the thing is, it's now... It's become a... It's become funny. Like, the Blue Danube. Mm-hmm. It's been spoofed so many times. And there's that whole um, Simpsons spoof where Homer's, like... Hum, 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 eating his doughnuts as he floats around in space.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, all of it. Sounds very familiar. Yeah, all yeah. of it has
1: been spoofed so much that actually it's become kind of comical. But if you try and just kind of block all that spoof noise out, it is beautiful. It is it's an, it is a work of art. It really is.
0: But it's more than just saying, this song's pretty cool. We'll put yeah. this here.
1: Yeah. Like that, you
0: know, bom, 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 uh-huh. uh, uh, bom, 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 bom. That's, that's like a signaling that evolution is happening. Mm. So when the monolith is on, in the Dawn of Man section, when the monolith appears and Moonwatcher sees it, we hear uh, Zarathustra, I think is how it's pronounced. Mm. Or, or it's like, also, s- also it? Sprat Zarathustra, however you pronounce it. Because the ape has been given the gift of evolution he can now go and find that bone mm. then later on when we end it when we're ending the film that's the the that's the the song that rings out the new uh, stage of evolution it starts the film mm. because we are now have evolved from nothing to ape how did they get those apes to do all that stuff <laughs> Fucking hell, Joshua! <laughs> With
1: a lot of PG tips. No, you're right. No, I'm sorry. It's flippant. <laughs> <laughs> what do you make of
0: the um? What do you make of the ending? So, from when he's killed Hal, yeah, and he gets in the pod again, and he's flying it's off, like shooting what, off through space. What is what? What do you think of that section? And what do you think of? The section in what looks like a really fancy hotel room,
1: yeah, but that bit where he's rushing through space, it kind of becomes this acid trip nightmare kind of thing, and it but can you see a structure there yeah, because the whole point is with that we've kind of gone beyond the the realm of human understanding, yeah so it, it's it's um it's beyond the infinite, we were told that at the start of yeah. the chapter, yeah. Jupiter and beyond the infinite, yeah. So it's kind of or the infinite, purposefully beyond. obtuse. You don't really know exactly what the hell's going on. Yeah. Jupiter and beyond the infinite is what it's called. Yeah. Do you think that you know the dawn of man thing? What's the next subtitle that comes up after that one? Um, Jupiter mission. Eighteen months later. Does the dawn of man count uh, all the way up to the spaceships?
0: It goes dawn of man. Then there's the the bone in the air. Yeah. And it cut the jump cut from. Bone to spaceship, hmm. then we go to the moon. Yeah, but there's then no the subtitle. Signal, there's no subtitle. Then yeah. there's a signal. Then it, the film cuts and it goes to on the screen Jupiter mission. 18 months later. Yeah.
1: So is the film counting all the space exploration and the moon and all that stuff? Does that all count as the the origins of man? Maybe the dawn of man. Maybe like that's the first. We are still us now in 2018. In the dawn of man, we're nowhere near the spaceships, and you know we're nowhere near kind of interplanetary travel. So are we still in our dawn? Potentially. Maybe we're at lunchtime. God, that's depressing. Maybe we're halfway through. <laughs> yeah. We're about to go and have our dinner. <laughs> no, but that's a very good point.
0: That whole thing is the, the dawn of man. Mm. But maybe he's making links between how we, how we developed the ideas of tools and technology and what, we've actually, what we're actually using it for. Yeah. Then that signal goes out on the moon. Then we jump forward. Mm. there's always a jump isn't there every time there's a jump from episode to episode there's a jump in time Mm. and there's more jumps at the end what do you think about the the scene in the hotel or whatever looks like the fancy bedroom Mm.
1: well when i read about the book it said that Dave is basically being shown something comforting, like an environment that would be comforting to him as a human being. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't really fly with me because that place looks really uncomfortable. Yeah. It's like really brightly lit with weird disco floor and gaudy <laughs> decor and like the weird guy eating his dinner in the other room. Really bizarre. Is that another guy? Yeah, because what happens to him? Does he just disappear? Well, he arrives
0: and we arrive, the, the eye is blinking. Mm. and it's like all psychedelic blink psychedelic blink goes to normal yeah then there's like a, a pov shot a point of view shot of the hotel room then we look back at dave then we look back at the same shot and there's a guy stood there in the spacesuit, mm. and the guy's looking back at dave but then dave's gone and it's just that guy
1: i love that he's called dave <laughs> why? Everyone why everyone knows a Dave. you are dave yeah you are i can't do that for you dave sorry i can't <laughs> do that <laughs> i honestly i honestly haven't i can't even fathom what it means i think because he dies in the bed doesn't he
0: yeah but well does he Mm. i think it's i think it's the the final stages of of evolution for the human race Mm. time is folding in on itself so quickly that we can actually see our future self stood on the other side Uh, of the room yeah because every time we see another person, that person's getting older. Yeah. The person who was looking back at Dave in the pod is Dave, I think, because he's in the spacesuit. Mm. And it's the same spacesuit with the, the red spacesuit and the green helmet. Mm. Um. So he's looking back at himself and he's a bit older. Then he sees the, the, the dude having a meal and he's a bit older. And that's Dave. Then Dave's in the bed and he's looking a bit older. Then he sees the monolith, dies and is reborn as the star child Mm. human evolution has gone on because it wouldn't be really arrogant to think that you know because we we came from nothing we evolved from like one cell organisms all the way through evolution to you know prehistoric ape people and now we are allegedly fabulous fabulous, darling allegedly intelligent human beings yeah is it really arrogant of us to think that this is how it will always be? We're
1: not going to evolve onto anything else. It's like, nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, that fucking show. <laughs> I don't know, that entire thing in, in the boudoir, whatever it is, that just made me think of David Lynch. Like, I just think David Lynch must love this film. He calls Kubrick the man. Yeah. Yeah. Because David Lynch will never explain what the red drapes mean in his funky, jazzy, weird psycho world and why should he well no i know it's fine why should anyone explain yeah, yeah anything yeah. well I, he shouldn't abstract explain it, actually yeah I'd, I'd argue that he shouldn't um because it takes away some of its intrigue but then the same with that weird little disco room that's going on it's like what is it i don't really know i do know that the paintings on the wall in that room? Oh, yeah they're all renaissance paintings which is rebirth so is he turning into barry linden potentially <laughs> is barry linden actually in the future no, this is just getting silly now. <laughs> it's in the Kubrick verse. Yeah. Did you notice that he uses a device and... Who's he? Kubrick. Oh. Um, I don't know how... He's not particularly repetitive visually, is he? Kubrick? Yeah. Well, in what quite sense? Distinct. Like, each film is quite distinct from the other. I mean, there's, there's
0: the hallmarks of Kubrick, like tracking, following mm. the character, or pulling back from a character. You know, he starts off tight yeah. and then zooms out. Or the camera's on the dolly, you know, like in um, in oh wait, in two thousand and one on that that uh, circular circular spaceship. spaceship. Yeah. Um, I can never say the proper word. The cent- centrifuge, you know. And Dave's gone out for a run, or Frank's mm. gone out for a run, and he's either behind or in front. So he does that a lot. He was mm. doing that in the fifties in Paths of Glory. Um, the the Kirk Douglas character would be walking through the World War One. Um, trenches Mm. and Kubrick would either have the camera behind following or um, in front and the camera's walking backwards following Kirk's walking towards the camera but the camera's moving back so he did that in The Shining Mm. so there's all that there's like one point um, yeah you know like everything's symmetrical one point um, very Wes Anderson well he clearly got it from yeah from Kubrick so there are all these things but okay each film is is so vastly different. Yeah. And, and, and as you go along in, in the filmography, they become even more different. Mm. Like you would never look at this and go, oh, so this is the same director as Eyes Wide Shut. Or Full Metal Jacket. Or or full Metal Jacket, because yeah. he looks so different. Yeah. But thematically, it all comes under a complete mistrust of authority. Mm. And I asked his daughter that. Yeah, I said, what is it about a mistrust of authority that is so prevalent in all his films? And she said, wouldn't you mistrust people who are using their authority corrupt, uh, mm. corruptedly? Is that a word? Corrupt. So he completely mistrust because people would just use their power and they go, mad. that's what Dr. Strangelove is about. Mm. That's what Clockwork Orange is about.
1: Yeah, interesting.
0: That's what The Shining Elements of The Shining is about that. And the authority being the hotel and the spirits themselves. Or even the father figure Even the father figure, yeah. Yeah.
1: The reason I asked that was because there's a shot. When Dave is, like, travelling through the space gate thing, there's a shot, a freeze frame shot of him screaming. And that is repeated again in The Shining. When Danny sees things, he's like, there's a freeze frame of him screaming. It's called the Kubrick stare. Is it? Like, he
0: would always put the camera slightly... Lower than the person uh-huh. and have them sort of look up through their eyebrows. So they did it a lot in Full Metal Jacket.
1: Mm. Um, oh, yeah, like that. Uh, D'Onofrio did that quite a lot, didn't he? Yeah.
0: And those freeze frames kind of repeated again in Eyes Wide Shut when Tom Cruise has been rumbled and he's in, you know, that sex party. Heard, dirty sex party. It. Well, he, he, his character gets rumbled at this kind of masonic. Um, Rothschild-style rich person fucking in nice surroundings like Country Hall (laughs) kind of party. And everyone's got these Venetian masks on. So when there's this moment where Tom Cruise has been rumbled, Kubrick just cuts to a load of... They're not still photographs, but no one's moving in the frame. And it's all these Venetian masks that are kind of contorted, but Hmm. just staring. Hmm. And it's really unnerving. Yeah, But all these these kind of visual techniques do litter his films. Mm. But like any visual director, any visual artist, you will always reuse the same images over yeah. and over because that's your style. That's, yeah. How do we know it's a Coen Brothers film? Because of the way they move their camera. Mm. How do we know it's a David Lynch film? Because of the way he moves his camera. and the things weird. He, yeah, but the, the things he puts on screen. Same with Kubrick. We know that it's a Kubrick film because of the way he's moving his camera. What do you think is the definition of man? What's the definition of man? Yeah. As in mankind or the gender?
1: Of mankind. Capital M. Capital M? Yes. Um, I think it's empathy. Interesting. I don't think Hal has
0: empathy. Mm. I don't think he knows how to... I don't think he knows how to have empathy. But I think he understands that man has empathy. Because when, when Dave's killing him... He's, he's trying to play on Dave's emotions by going, I'm afraid, Dave. Mm. And he's almost like recounting his life story. I was built, yada, yada, yada. I can't remember the, the, the phrase, but he's trying to He says see, yada, yada, he's yada. He's like, hey, hey, <laughs> hey, I'm a computer. Don't fucking kill me, man but he's like it's actually tony curtis that i'm may- a computer don't kill me <laughs> that may have actually saved his life might have but he's trying to you know prod dave's empathy mm. and dave's just like no fuck you mate you've just killed frank mm. you've just killed my mate whose helmet yellow with with the the blue eyes looks like zippy from rainbow <laughs> yeah. so i think maybe it's the other way around <laughs> i think zippy from rainbow looks like yeah. um so I think it's empathy. I think empathy is the one thing that will separate
1: us from Siri or Alexa mm. or from Hal. So apparently the actual definition of man used to be our uh, ability to use tools. But then they realised that loads of animals use tools. Like, did you see um, Blue, Pla- Blue Planet? No. Is it Blue Planet? Yeah, where the fish was, like, throwing a shell against a rock repeatedly. No. Using the rock to break open the shell. And, like, magpies use wire and stuff like that. So... That stopped being the definition of man.
0: But yeah, like birds make nests <clears throat> out of yeah, exactly. shit, don't they? Yeah,
1: everything has tools. Beavers much. make dams. Beaver. Um, Elephants no. make conservatories. <laughs> <laughs> That's just you. Um, I know. I've put a little bit of weight on. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the actual definition of um, man—what's so it become—is our ability to predict the future. Who decided this? I don't know. Some some special, very intelligent person. Because animals who don't do podcasts. Yeah, because animals can't predict the future. They don't even know the future exists, but man does. But do animals have empathy? I mean, you could argue that dogs are quite empathetic, aren't they? If you fall down, the dog will come over and try to make you feel better. Really? And investigate. But yeah.
0: Is that how you... Because we've got a dog. It's called Teddy. And That's confusing for the dog. <laughs> he is very confusing. He looks like an Ewok. That's oh, why he was Oh my called. God, he's even more confusing. And he's so adorable. He's so placid. And he's so... He's very friendly, Mm. but he's very needy. Like if he thinks no one's in, he'll cry. Then when he realizes you're in, boom, he's on me like glue. But you can look at his face and because dogs don't have facial expressions, you can put whatever whatever emotion you want into that face Mm. and you suddenly go, oh, are you sad? He's just looking at you with the same
1: face. Oh, you're happy. He's looking at you with the same face. Are you hungry? Looking at you with the same face. I think animals definitely have expressions, but they're not necessarily human ones. Like a dog's expression constantly changes. Like it sticks tail. It sticks its tongue out and, it look, and its mouth opens or its eyes go down. Its, sorry, its ears go down or its eyes change shape. But we're so accustomed for emotion to yeah. come out in, the, in our faces. Well, there's that phenomenon where you see faces and stuff. So you can see faces in the front of a building. Yeah. And things like that. I've forgotten what it's called, but yeah, we look, it's we are programmed to... Look.
0: Phenomenon Building Syndrome.
1: <laughs> we're programmed to find faces and things because <laughs> we're looking to connect and understand. Was it a realistic future that Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke predicted? Like the look and the feel yeah. and the, the things that that version of humankind had achieved? The least realistic part was the fashion, obviously, because whenever sci-fi tries to do futuristic fashion, it's always entrenched in the fashion of the era So even when the guy was going to phone his daughter, she was sitting there in like this ridiculous kind of shining carpet frock. (laughs) And they're talking about the telephones and all this kind of stuff. I mean, it seems, it feels pretty realistic. It feels Mm. likely. And it's not the case that, you know, people still walk across the room. They still want a cup
0: of tea. You know, Leonard Rossiter, I love the way that he just, when he offers the guy, um, Hayward, his his seat, then gets another seat for himself and then just uses his finger to slowly slide his glass back over mm. to the table to him. I love
1: the way he does that. <laughs> um, I did love, like this is quite a humorless film, but there is one really hilarious moment where the guy is reading a sign and looking really worried because the sign says zero gravity toilet. <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah. And it's just like a little blink and miss moment. I just love how fully realized it is. Like they, mm. they would
0: go to the lengths to think. How would you have a shit in space? How would you go for a <laughs> just wee? hold it in, hold it in until you get what? Hold it until you get to the moon. Kind of a can't go for three days. <laughs> yeah. But I just love how fully realised it is, and how you know, yes, whoever is the the big airplane company at the time, Pan Am, would be the one to make interplanetary. You know, transport, Hmm. you know, grip shoes, the anti-gravity shoes or whatever, the gravity
1: shoes, that's brilliant. She must have really sprayed her hair to stop it from flying upwards when she was in zero gravity. We all have that problem. (laughs) But, you know, the, 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 where the food trays are dispensed from,
0: they haven't just gone, we need a machine that will dispense food. They've gone, what does it look like? What are the practical, what are the practicalities of it? what the little um, control panel they have on their forearm on the spacesuits, what does that look like? What do the helmets look like? The production design here is gorgeous and it makes me think of that think tank that Spielberg put together ahead of Minority Report where he got all these different experts in, like, I don't know, 10, 20 of them and for three days they just brainstormed what would the future look like in the Minority Report universe. hmm it's genius when, when, when people do that because then it gives every single thing in that world a real-life basis. So the trick has been achieved. The trick of tricking the audience into believing that this is a real experience and a real narrative
1: and a real environment is, is wonderful. It's such a successful trick. Hmm. But people didn't really like the film, did they? Like people, people walked out, Rock Hudson walked out going, someone explain what this shit is. <laughs> like critics called it a shaggy God story and just basically kind of, kind of poo-pooed the whole thing. But now look who's laughing. Yeah. 50 I just,
0: years on, we're still talking yeah, about I know.
1: it. I love Kubrick's comeback when he said that his critics were all materialistic and earthbound. <laughs> I was like, well, you can't deny that, can you? No. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think you'd watch it again pretty soon? No. I would watch it again, like at some point in my life but I don't feel I'm not in a rush to watch it again. I like it. I really. This is the thing. I've got a, such a love-hate relationship with it because I love what it did for the genre. I think it's beautifully put together. It is the work of a visionary. There's no question about that whatsoever. But it just kind of bores me. It just is so difficult to engage with and stay with it. I think you have to get past that. The more you watch it, the easier... I've got easier, other stuff I can watch.
0: But the more you watch it, the easier it is... To engage in it because you kind of you can see the shape, you can see what's coming, you can see the but episodes I knew what was coming, you see the structure
1: more. But I know the structure. I just find it such a pleasure to watch. I love it. I'm really happy for you, but I'm, <laughs> you can watch it on your own. <laughs> and I often do.
0: <laughs> so that was 2001: A Space Odyssey, directed
1: by Stanley Kubrick. Have you watched 2001 A Space Odyssey more than once? Did you enjoy it? Do you, have you been to space? Let us know at Torn Stubbs Pod. We're on Twitter. If you're into film, music, theatre, culture,
0: head to movetotrash.co.uk. We're off to open the pod bay doors. Until next time, I remain Robert Gershenson. I'm Joshua, winning. Cut, Dave.